Are you ready for another round? To the latest episode of Rounds Rant, and I'm over the moon to say I'm joined by Bill Oakley, who is a television writer and producer best known for his work on the comedy series that some of you may know, which was known as The Simpsons. And Bill has also recently ventured into the vlogging world too, in which if you go onto his Instagram, you can see him critiquing fast food all over America. So Thank you so much for coming on the show, Bill. And first and foremost, how are things with you today? Oh, things are good. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I think this is maybe the first Irish podcast I've ever been on. Yeah. So hopefully the look of the Irish <laughs> is in store for the next while. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. And yeah, so what I do with most of my guests when I have them on is I tend to find out about their childhoods and all sorts of stuff. But one of the things that when I deal with people who are quite creative and what I kind of want to know is like, what, what did Bill Oakley get up to when he was a teenager? Like what was his hobbies? Was it annoying teachers? Was it away from school? Like what were you, were you and your friends getting up to in your, your early years? Uh, well, we did get in a lot of trouble, although not too much in school, more out of school. My, when I say when I say we, a lot of times it's going to be referring to me and Josh Weinstein. Josh Weinstein, who may your listeners may know, was my best friend in high school, and then we went on to a comedy writing career together, where we wrote for and ran The Simpsons, uh, and then we've done a whole bunch of other things subsequent to that. But so, and Josh, when I say we, a lot of times you me and Josh. Anyway, we tended, I would say the thing that we did most was we wanted to do funny, write and draw funny stuff. Uh, that was kind of my, it just, it kind of goes hand in hand with my childhood stuff that you asked about. Like when I was a kid, when I mean under 10, like we still lived in an era when there was not very much for kids to do. Like there was no cable TV. There was no Nickelodeon. There were no, there wasn't very much entertainment for kids at all like the kids you know you get to go to the movies maybe twice a year when a movie a disney movie came out and your parents would take you and that was it and otherwise you get to watch cartoons on saturday morning or read mad magazine i don't know how famous mad magazine is in ireland but in america it was like the thing it was the thing between like 1955 and 1980 that every kid read and that's where your sense of humor came from so i spent a lot of time we lived on a farm out in the country and there was nothing to do most of the time. I spent a lot of time reading Mad Magazine and I really wanted to draw and I wanted to draw and write funny stuff like I saw there. And so as time went on, I started to do that more. I became a cartoonist. I started doing fairly decent cartoons in like second grade. And and as time went on, I became more of a cartoonist. And in high, in high school, as a teenager, I started drawing cartoons for the high school newspaper and then I met Josh, who was more of a writer, and we kind of collaborated on a lot of stuff, eventually founding our own high school humor magazine, which was a really good mag for high school. It was a very impressive magazine. And then we went on to do more stuff like that in college and gradually transitioning into TV. It was a pretty natural progression and mainly just because we really liked to, to write and draw funny stuff. Yeah, well, it's easy now to have your imagination taken away from you. As you were saying there with social media or even Nickelodeon, that's still that's still kicking these days as well. But having having a friend nearly beside you 
that you could bounce ideas off, make fun of. They would return the favor, no doubt. That obviously helps. And I've even heard some maybe of maybe the more, say, film oriented. I know like Seth Rogen has a pal that which he writes all the stuff with. And having that kind of friendship develop into nearly a, an outlet for your artistic tendencies. Did that like kind of inspire both of you or was it a case where even if you were going solo, you would have always gotten into writing? I think I probably would have gone more into cart, like drawing a comic strip type thing. Um, but part of working with Josh is it was the collaborator. It's so much more fun to work with a partner. You know, there's, yeah. there's the upside is it's so much more fun. You don't sit there alone, beating your head against the wall. However, you have to split the money and that becomes, that only becomes an issue later when you start to be like, Hey, we both have, two or three kids <laughs> and we're spending yeah. the money between us and that becomes annoying at a certain point. But when you're young and that doesn't really matter so much, it's so much funner to write with a partner than it is. Assuming that you guys are friends. Like if a lot of times people get into writing partnerships where it's just like, we they barely know each other and then there's a lot of conflict. Um, since Josh and I were already friends and we already kind of had the same sense of humor, it really worked to get work well. Yeah, I could imagine. And as you progress through the teenage years and high school, college, like like most people do, you, and as you were saying, Josh, you find yourselves, you know, you continue writing. And from what like, I've read about you and what I've heard, like when you came out of college, you were doing some writing bits here and there, which is often the case with aspiring writers. You kind of have to earn your trade and wait for the big, the big break, but before maybe the the Simpsons came to your doorstep, there was like a prolonged period in which like you yes. were essentially unemployed. Oh yeah, and not I don't want to ask like how tough that was because obviously maybe there was some doubts in there. But was there ever a moment in that kind of prolonged period where you're thinking, okay, maybe this writing dream ain't going to work, and maybe I should get a you know, quote unquote. Oh convent. yeah, absolutely. I think I had to say we had about, about Josh and I had about four years between college and when we finally got hired on the Simpsons. In fact, it was almost exactly four years um, where we were unemployed. Like we had written a lot of sample material that wasn't really getting us. And we wrote sample material for David Letterman and Saturday Night Live and things like that. It wasn't really getting us anywhere. And we had a couple of jobs on cable TV shows that were kind of cheap. Uh, we moved out to Los Angeles to work on another TV show, which was immediately canceled and part of the you know and this is part of what happened then is that we were like we were on unemployment the employment was the unemployment was running out and in fact because we'd already been out for i think it was 26 or 39 weeks or whatever and this is what happened we had a script like the whole thing about writing at least back then writing for tv was you needed to write a sample script people call it a spec script because you're writing on a spec so you would write a sample script one or more sample scripts you know a show that you'd like so you'd write a, a funny script and people would read it and go Hey, these people will assign them a script. You know, these people can write in the style of an existing show. Let's give them a shot. And so what we had, we had a spec script. Our spec script was pretty crummy. This is the thing. It was a spec script for this show called Coach, which you probably don't know in Ireland uh, about, a, about a college football coach. There was a real mediocre show, but we were like, this is just as good as the average episode of Coach. And it was, it was, but that didn't really impress anybody. And finally we get, somebody gave us, um, you know, and in fact, at the time, it was very, it was annoying, but in retrospect, it was probably the most useful advice we ever got was like, you guys didn't, this isn't not that good. Yeah. It's as good as the average episode of coach, but it, that's not very good. And it's obvious that you don't like this show very much. So what you need to do 
is write a script for a show that you do like. And we were like, oh, crap. like at that point we were like, the unemployment was running out. I was, we were both considering abandoning the career. I was trying to get a job at the state department in the U S and I sent away for the foreign service exam, which is what you have to take to join the state department. And it was so hard. It was so hard that I was just like, okay, let's write another script. Let's do it. Let's go ahead and write another script. And at that point, so we decided a show called Seinfeld. You guys have heard of Seinfeld, right? Yeah. I'm a big fan of okay. Larry David's work. Uh, so no, it had well. been, it was all had only been on four times. It was still called the Seinfeld Chronicles at that point, but we loved it. We thought it was like the best TV show that had ever come along. So we wrote a spec script for that. And then things started to happen. So, just basically suddenly it was because we were like, we really loved the show. We wanted to write a script that was as good as the show. And we did. In fact, Larry David called it the second best. He'd read it and he called it the second best Seinfeld script he'd ever read or spec script he'd ever read, which was a high praise coming from him. It's even yeah. the second best. Um, and so at that point, the guys at The Simpsons read it and they liked it and they gave us an assignment to write that episode that finally became Marge Gets a Job. It was Conan's story. Um, and so that was what happened. And it was definitely a, a test of persistence because we had we just given up and not written that script, we would be I'd be lucky to have a job at the State Department <laughs> um, <laughs> and we wouldn't have had any of the career that we have currently had. And furthermore, I should say this. When we got hired at The Simpsons, we already had a job on another show. You know, our spec script had gotten us a lot of meetings with good shows and we had a meeting. We had been hired already to work on another show that was a good show, but ultimately didn't last very long. And we called our agent and said, look, before we started this show, could you just call The Simpsons? Just call them and see if there's any chance that they would ever hire us. And he called them and they did. That was, that. you know, like that's I, I cannot stress how worth it it was to have him make that call because what had happened is during the time between the time we were at Marty gets a job and that time of that phone call, uh, Jake Kogan and Wally Waladarski, who had been writers there since day one had left. So there was a vacancy. There was an office with two guys, <laughs> two, two desks in it. And there was a vacancy for two guys and they hired us. And it was those two things. Those two events were both things where we, we just, we just pushed a little harder than norm, we normally would have. And it ended up paying off. It, you know, in all in the six month period. Yeah, and by the sounds of us, rather than doing those, the crummy exams and going for a, a different role, the the pres like kind of the the willingness to go that extra mile pay dividends, obviously. And then you suddenly find yourself <clears throat> in with the likes of Conan and the rest of the writing, uh, the writing staff with the Simpsons. And I always I get a great kick out of seeing the the pictures of the right yeah. room where you think it'd be something very glamorous and organized. It's just like pizza boxes and just people smoking cigarettes uh, with loads of papers around. But yeah, that was part of the charm in those days. We wanted to make it like uh, we, the dorm room atmosphere of the show was very much part of the charm. And we, uh, when Josh and I took over the show, we moved back into that room, the room that you see in the photos, because yeah. it had been out of that room for a couple of years. We moved back in. We did have some of the couches repaired, but other than that, we were like, let's get back to the dorm room atmosphere that made this show great to begin with. Um, and that was part of the fun. You're right. And it was, uh, it was not glamorous at all. Uh, the, and there was not, there was no Hollywood element to it whatsoever. And that was part of the fun of the show is that, you know, most of the people who worked there at that time had not worked on other <clears> TV shows. They had worked on either Saturday Night Live or other come from other areas. And so there was very, it was the least Hollywood of the TV shows that I ever encountered. And that was, I think that's to its uh, credit. 
Yeah, it sounds awful like your your favorite restaurant or not maybe your favorite, but like the one you'd like to go to regularly because of the atmosphere and just kind of the vibe it gives you personally, yeah, yeah. That, that little room. And within that room on a regular basis, as you said, you had so many creative minds, but you've, you and Josh have pretty much been thrusted in here and you've you've spoken about how you felt somewhat you know nearly out on your feet a little bit intimidated at the start oh, yeah and i'd like to know was there a was there a joke you made was there a episode idea was it even just someone like conan saying hey bill write this for me or come up with this idea was there a particular moment where you felt that you finally took that step where you felt fully comfortable with the rest of the riders and on par with them there was it was a very gradual process because as as you said when we arrived we didn't know what we were doing this is our first real tv job and we had no idea what it was going to be like even day to day like we didn't know what the job entailed and a lot of it was just sitting in the room for the first couple months and gradually getting and i think i remember the stuff that we said most of the stuff we said we were pretty quiet early on and we started to say, well, occasionally we would say jokes and, and when one of them got in, I would write it down and, you know, so I would remember and, you know, uh, gradually over time we got, we started to get more and more jokes in, but that wasn't like, I mean, that was a competitive room because we had, you know, we had George Meyer, John Vitti, Swartzwelder all there in the room at that time. So it wasn't like they needed our input, but I uh, finally, what happened was, um, we got more, I think, I think Al Jean said we were doing a good job at one point, which was very high praise at that point. And then also, um, uh, I remember when we turned in the first draft for Margin Chains, uh, John Vitti said it was the best first draft of the year. And that was the highest praise we've ever received because it's like, it was John Vitti, first of all. And also, yeah. there was a stellar lineup of writers that year. So we were very, that's something I still remember to this day. And I think at, around that point, um, we, I think we felt pretty confident. And furthermore, what happened after that was that almost all of those guys left. <laughs> that was the, yeah. the strange thing that happened is that like after um, we had been there for about eight or eight months, all of the original guys except for Conan left, including um, and Dan McGrath came in and it was for, a, for at least three or four months. The only people on the show uh, in the writing department were me and Josh and Conan and Dan McGrath. And so we just kind of made up stuff on our own. And that was the best time we ever had there for sure. Um, Cause we didn't have <laughs> any responsibilities and it was a lot of fun. So yeah, by the sounds of it, it was, it was nearly like schools out. The shackles yeah, were off. Exactly. <clears throat> We'd say you mentioned there that the writing room has changed. And when there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes, it's bound to change. But did you go in there and start writing and think, okay, there's a set structure for this, for this to work. There's been a variety of episodes and even like I actually watched there with my housemate last night, the 22 stories about Springfield, the steamed hams famously written by yourself, but that doesn't really have a flow to it. That's just like segments, a bit like Pulp Fiction and whatnot. But most Simpsons episodes have a nearly a graph to us or an underline and theme. Oh yeah. Yeah. a big mission about us. Was that something that was established really early on? Like that yeah. was the DNA. So when you gathered around, they were like, this is what we need to do. These are the building blocks. Let's get the jokes going. Let's get the characters going. Or how did that process kind of evolve or present itself? 
by the time we got there, it was pretty much set in stone. And I think the thing was that it, the the formula, the formula of the episode, the way that the episodes broke down was pretty similar. Like the structure of the episodes were was always fairly, even no matter how different the episodes were, it was always pretty similar since the early season two. And then once in a while, there'd be an episode that would still be in that structure, but would kind of break the bounds of the show, like the monorail episode. Um, and then for the next two years, when David Merkin was running the show, he did some more. He, I mean, he, I think he kept the structure fully intact, but he did some more episodes that kind of pushed the boundaries of the show. And, and then by the time Josh and I took over, we knew what we wanted to do, which was a combination of those two things, which was keep, keep the structure, go back to shows that were more like ep- from season three, which we considered the best season in the history of television. We basically just tried to copy season three with you know we had like oh the season three had one itchy and scratchy episode one sideshow bob episode three lisa episodes six homer episodes so that's what we did when we did made up season seven it was just like that but then each year we said let's have two episodes that completely break the format because this show has been on long enough now that we can go nuts and there's no reason not to do stuff like 22 short films or frank grimes or the spinoff showcase because we we were like this show's been on long enough the viewers will get it and it'll be fun for everybody to write something somewhat different and frank grimes is a you'll be glad to know my old man my father's favorite (laughs) episode um, I'm so glad, you know, the weird thing about that is that nobody liked it when it came out. I think everybody was shocked that it was so dark and they didn't quite, I think that you have to have seen a lot of Simpsons to appreciate that episode because yeah. otherwise you just think this is an awful, sad story about this <laughs> uptight man and this moron Homer who is being even more of a moron in this episode. But, you know, it was a commentary on the whole history of the Simpsons up to that point. Uh, and it, it's, it's really, I'm glad to hear it was your dad's favorite because like, I think that people, it only came to be popular. Like a lot of this stuff only became, including steamed hams only became popular maybe about 15 years after it aired, after people, after the general public had gotten to see a lot more Simpsons in reruns, because then you understand like, Oh, this is kind of a, this is an episode for Simpsons fans. This is an episode that you can only really appreciate if you've seen a lot of Simpsons prior to that. Yeah, I I completely agree. And you you know more than I do in that respect mm-hmm. where just these clips, there's now Instagram pages where it's just like Simpsons clips and every single day you've got highlights, so to speak. And it's just so accessible. And like the gags are are limit, limitless when you've got that, such an extensive archive. But <clears throat> one thing... I'm glad to see it's also taking a new generation of people. Now that Disney Plus is finally airing it, I don't know if it's on Disney Plus. Yeah, no, it's on Disney Plus. Oh, good. Because for about the past 10 years prior to that, it didn't come on Disney Plus until 2020. And for about 10 years before that, you could only see it either on TV or on simpsonsworld.com, which was a catastrophe because you had to log in with your cable provider ID and it still showed you the commercials. So a whole generation of people who are now between the ages of 10 and maybe 20 never saw the Simpsons, but now that it's on Disney plus kids are seeing it again. And so like little kids under 10 are becoming Simpsons fans again, which is exciting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just to go back even to refer to the fact that like I've, I can watch episodes with my dad and we can, he can relate to being, having to put up with me as a son and I have to kind of view him as an Abe Simpson type character and kind of joke that his <laughs> days are numbered before he goes off to the old folks home. And it's a bit of a give and take, but 
that's kind of at an essence of what the Simpsons created was such a varying like amount of comedy, heart, emotion, where a 70-year-old could enjoy the episode and a five-year-old could enjoy the episode and they wouldn't get lost in the narrative. And yourself, like you've written some episodes where it's maybe heavy on Marge or maybe geared a bit towards Lisa and then maybe the Bart and Homer ones would be a bit more rowdy and whatnot. Having said that, Mother Simpson episode is the only episode that made me cry. But it basically reaffirms the kind of status that there was such a balance there and at stages you'd have very emotional episodes you would have a mix then you'd have as you said maybe with the monorail just a barrage of kind of social commentary and Mm -hmm. references how did that balance or i suppose the better question would be like how did you decide on that balance before you'd start writing or was it something just by scene by scene, you'd be like referring back to the first scene and going, okay, we can do this and that. Or how did you strike that balance between emotion and comedy? Well, it was both, I guess I'd say it was both on the macro level on the micro level. Whereas we would say on the season, we say we want seven, it's just 24 episodes in, you know, in the season 22. And we'd say, okay, we want seven or eight of these to have emotion to be fairly heavy emotional episodes, you know, like, uh, like Marge, be not proud, the Christmas episode or whatever. And, or our ground and emotional episodes tend to be more grounded, you know, tend to be more about things that, you know, our fam are emotional stories, you know, whereas stories about the, 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 you know, the, about burglary or Homer going into space or whatever are not, they don't, they don't have a lot of emotion built in. So we knew from the outset when we planned the, when Josh and I would plan the season in two parts after the writing retreat and the writers would say, I'll come forth with episodes they wanted to write. We'd say, okay, let's put this, let's put them in this order. So there's an emotional one. There's a Lisa one. There's a Homer one. There's, there's a really crazy one. And then there's another emotional one so that you wouldn't get bored, you know, so that they'd come in an order that was mixed up. Uh, then on in certain episodes, you know, Mother Simpson is a good example. Like this episode is going to be heavy. It's going to have serious emotional components, but, and, and we know it, it, once you know that's where the story is going, you know what those scenes are going to be. And, and part of, you just don't want to get in your own way. Part of that is like, let's let this be emotional. We don't have to crap it up with a lot of silly jokes. Sometimes you want to have an emotional scene and just let it breathe. And you don't have to have it be, you know, the Simpsons is very funny, but sometimes it's necessary to go a whole page with no joke. If it's a really sincere, sweet scene. And that actually reminds me of Homer's triple bypass. I, I watched that with my old man a couple of months ago and, he had an open heart surgery about 10 or plus years ago. And there's a scene where <laughs> Homer's at the hospital bed and he's getting all teary eyed with Bart and Lisa. Um, my dad was just like, he was like, I, ne- I nearly remember saying that to you and your two brothers. Oh, wow. Except what I said was, was probably a bit harsher, <laughs> but that's kind of a good example of such a hilarious episode to where just in a split second, it changes. But on the, nearly the, the arc or the curve, as you said, with episodes and not getting in your own way. Do you find, and you've worked in a variety of different projects, as you said, short skits, longer formats, and now even say with modern comedy, you can have shows where it's 30, 40, 60. If it's Stranger Things, it could be about five hours for one episode. Right, right. 
do you feel and like I personally feel with comedy the 25 to 30 minute kind of range is the absolute sweet spot like what what are the subtle differences between maybe longer form comedy and the shorter form when it comes to tv shows like the difference between a 20 25 minute one and maybe a 45 50 minute episode you know i think you're right i completely agree with you that like first well if we're not talking if we're not assuming we're not talking about sketches but we're talking about stories with a narrative yeah i Mm. think about 22 minutes is just about right like most times that almost every time that a comedy has done an hour long episode, it seems too long. It seems like it's, it's, it's running out of gas and and it's not that funny in the second half. And I've never felt that like an extra 40 minutes made a comedy much better. Sometimes maybe an extra one or two minutes did, but that's for a TV comedy. Like, and for a 40 minute show, you got to have a story that, that holds, that keeps people's interest. I mean, that's why that's usually dramas are that long 45, you know, 48 minutes generally for broadcast drama or 44 minutes. Now, like you have to have a story with a number with six acts that keeps people's interest by having a number of twists and so forth. And, and doing that with account with comedy as well is very hard. And it's very rarely done. Like even in a movie, if you look at movies, that are, are comedy movies, they actually don't have nearly as many jokes as a TV, like with a, so, a few exceptions. Um, they don't have nearly as many jokes as a, uh, as a TV show because the audience gets exhausted. Like think about like a movie like Airplane. That's all jokes all the way through. And that's a very <laughs> specific, rare type of movie or The Naked Gun. There aren't, there are almost no movies like that made. Most, even like the funniest movie, which is to say with like Austin Powers, for example, has a lot of jokes, but there's also a lot of character comedy, music montages and things that are not just gags that are, that are other types of humor. Um, the audience, like, you know, if, the, if you want an audience to laugh a lot and not get tired, I think a stand, you know, that's why stand-up specials are usually like about 40 minutes or something like that, because it's just, there's a lot of jokes. And even then there's lulls. Sometimes the comedian will go 45 seconds or a minute setting up a story before there's a laugh. I think a lot of it depends on your audience. A lot of it depends on the format you're in and also what, what you're trying to accomplish. Um, if you just want to be funny, it's very different than if you want to pull on people's heartstrings or tell a compelling story. Yeah, no, and I agree. And <laughs> Kind of reverting back to the Simpsons for a moment, the one of the things you you mentioned earlier on in the episode was the how the dynamic has changed with, as you said, like for instance, now Simpsons clips are everywhere to be seen all over the internet. And you've said back when you were writing or even going through school, it was a completely different era. And even now, like as months go by and you even have comedy writers. You've got directors of films all saying that, you know, comedy is that kind of sticky area at the moment now where you don't want to maybe offend anyone. But back when, say, you were writing with The Simpsons, you went and wrote about some pretty challenging topics at stages. Like one of the big ones was uh, Homer's phobia in which you, yeah. you dealt with a, a gay character. Like back in that time like what how did you and the group of writers approach say an episode like that or similar episodes where maybe you were stepping on toes potentially with you know professionalism but then also respect well the simpsons was not an area it didn't really 
breed it didn't really lend itself to being offensive like it was offensive yes in 1989 it was offensive it, shockingly people don't nobody remembers back in 1989 when eat my shorts was considered offensive when bart <laughs> when people had t-shirts that said underachiever and proud of it they banned them in schools and like this society as a whole has declined quite a bit since then because like Absolutely. now that's nothing that's nothing and i think the thing is if you if you if you're out if you're even in 1997, say, if you were out there looking for offensive comedy, The Simpsons is not where you're going to go. You're going to go to South Park or you're going to go to Family Guy or whatever. The Simpsons is not that's not their territory. And we weren't trying to do a, what the episodes you're describing. And we had a censor as well. I mean, the network had a censor who wouldn't have let us do that stuff if we wanted to. And we only ran into conflict with the censor a few times, one of which was that whole episode, Homer's Phobia. As you said, the censor hated it and said we couldn't do any of it. And we just said, never mind, we're going to do it. And then by the time it was animated, that censor had been replaced with a new one who just said it was fine. <laughs> so <laughs> that's like, that's the way that unfolded. But in most cases, there was not, we were not trying to be offensive. It was like, we were trying to push a little bit of a line where how many times can you show Homer's butt? But even so, we didn't like to have jokes about farts in the Simpsons. Like we'd rarely do that. <laughs> we'd rarely do stuff that, that, you know, we couldn't get away with saying scumbag most of the time. Like it was, those were, the censor was pretty strict, but the Simpsons again was not the place to be offensive. There were other places to find that kind of stuff if you wanted it. Yeah, and that that kind of reverts back to my point about the the variety of ages that would be viewing it, and that just kind of makes me want to ask you now: is like at that time of writing season four, five, six, etc. Like, was The Simpsons the juggernaut it is now? Like, it feels like if you went up to a complete stranger and just said, "Have you seen The Simpsons?" Ninety nine thousand out of ninety nine thousand one are going to say yes. Was it a juggernaut back no, then or was no, it kind of like... It was briefly, but it was a very strange thing. Like now, because this is the longest running TV show in the history of television other than Meet the Press or whatever <laughs> news show, 60 Minutes, it's... um Everybody has heard of it. Everybody has heard of it. As you said, back then, people had heard of it because it was so famous in season two and three. In season two and three was when the Simpsons, like Simpsons mania, every Christmas, you know, the, in 1989, 90, every Toys R Us was filled with Simpsons toys or so much Simpsons merchandise all over the place, T-shirts and crap that you that you couldn't he- stop hearing about it. And then in season two... And three, when it went up against Bill Cosby on TV and beat Bill Cosby, everybody was hearing about it as well. But by the time that we got there, and certainly all the way till the time we left, it had kind of settled into a groove where the show was on, the show was not in the top 10. It was generally between number 40 and number 60 uh, for the week. It did not even win the time slot. We would always get beat by this show called Mad About You, which everyone has now forgotten. But uh, it, we were regularly beat by that. And the thing, what was happening was when we broadcast the show, every kid would watch it. Some people between 18 and 34 would watch it. And nobody over 34 would watch it. So you would never run into people. You rarely would run into adults unless they were kind of comedy nerds who had watched the show on, on Fox when it was originally broadcast. They were people, everyone was watching Seinfeld. Everyone was watching other shows like that, and, but they were not watching The Simpsons. Adults were not watching, by and large, were not watching The Simpsons unless they were the kind of people who, you know, were early adopters, were fans of comic books and animation and stuff, which back then there weren't that many ad- adults. Animation was still considered a thing for kids. 
until basically until there became such a, you couldn't ignore it. Once King of the Hill and South Park and all those other shows started to come on, then it started to break that a little bit, but you'd always run it. Even when you worked on the Simpsons, you run into people who would say, I don't watch cartoons. Cartoons are for little kids. And they'd say it to you, <laughs> you know, and you'd be offended, but would not react because it, that was a common attitude back then. Yeah. So my dad would have been completely out of place if he was doing what he's doing now back in the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. Good to know. And with the, the Simpsons, you had a variety of titles like, writer, story editor, executive producer, which changed your expectation of yourself, how people viewed you within the organization and maybe the writer's room and stuff like that. One thing I want to ask is, as you said, there was kind of method to the genius or some people would say method to the madness Mm -hmm. was we need to have X amount of episodes for Homer and Bart and stuff like that. Was there surely stages where you're in a writing room and the quality is so high, it's the same as it may be a sporting team having different tactics for an opponent. Like how are, was it basically a case where based on your longevity or your job title, did sometimes the creative process just get decided by whoever was there the longest or was there always that collaboration where you could butt heads, but ultimately end up both working together and finding a place to kind of meet at a common ground or was there ever a case where you're like no this is happening because i want it to happen we're not done with <laughs> yes there idea. were those cases there were definitely those cases and uh but in general it was done by consensus i think because most of the time the group the group of 10 to 12 writers generally agreed on what we thought was funny um and there weren't that many times where Josh and I would say we're forcing this in because we want to. I mean, sometimes like we would definitely ignore the table. Like a lot of times people would use the table. The table read is when the script is initially read by the actors and a group of like 50 other people from the show. Um, And sometimes certain showrunners would use that as like that's nobody laughed at that joke at the table read. We're going to cut it. Josh and I stopped doing that because we were like that table read is not an audience that is reflective of the audience of the Simpsons. Yeah. And we said, we know this joke is funny. We're keeping it. And that happened as we, time went on more and more. Ha- it wasn't like the writers were saying, <laughs> you got to cut that joke. It was, it was the, the audience who had not laughed at it. And in many, and like for the, as I said, the, the table read for 22 short films was not good at all. But Josh and I just said, fuck, that's when we said, fuck it, we're doing this. It wasn't yeah. like, but the writers were all enthused about it. It was just that the audience didn't know. The, the only thing that ever really played all that great at the table reads was emotional stories that were very sweet and generally involved Lisa. Um, things that were zany or required a lot of visual imagination did not play well at the table. So as a certain point, Josh and I would just, we stopped having, there used to be a second read of the script on Monday after the table read and we completely abandoned that. That's why I don't know if you've ever heard of Father Ted's, the Irish yeah, sure. comedy. Yeah. So that is a, a comedy that 25, 30 minute episodes, like ep, most Irish people absolutely adore it. I, I find it to be absolutely amazing. But they introduced the, it was one of the first comedies I ever saw on TV where something funny would happen and then you'd have the audience just a, a, a soundbite of the audience laughing, nearly prompting you to laugh with them while with the, the Simpsons was so many layers that you discussed that that wouldn't have really worked. It just would have completely killed the moment, killed the subtlety maybe of the joke being built up to what the 
eventual punchline was. And it's very hard to watch yep. The Simpsons in a, with an audience because I've done it in a couple of times at like film festivals and things and people are laughing and then they miss the setup for the next joke or yeah. they miss the plot point for the next thing. And then they all start to get lost and it start the momentum. It's like a deflating balloon um, because it is it is very dense and it is best watched without hearing a lot of other people laughing. Yeah, no, I agree. And that was kind of the point I was trying to make that it, it's yeah. such a fast move. And but then also some of the best jokes in The Simpsons, it's not the first joke, which is, say, the first punchline presented to you. Like, the steam, Steamed Hams is a great example. Like, you start laughing at the first scene, and then the second scene gets more ridiculous, then it just keeps building and building and building, and you tend to just get more intense laughter with each uh, scene and with each, each crazy statement. And going forward into the kind of still focusing on The Simpsons, there obviously is times there where you're saying that there was collaboration, but then there was also times where you had to put the foot down. Was there, like when I always think of trying to write something funny or try and make a joke, it's what I find funny. Were you religiously tied to the fact that you were saying Homer Simpson is this person I'm writing for him? Or was there ever cases where Bill Oakley's humor and what Bill finds funny found itself into The Simpsons purely on what you thought was funny rather than what you thought was best for The Simpsons. I, I We tried not to do that. I am sure that once in a while we did. I think part of the things that Matt Matt Groening had this thing, which I think he called elastic reality or whatever, which was it was okay to make a joke that was out of character one you know one time or whatever. It'd be like a rubber band that went all the way out and then snapped back. So as long as you weren't like once in a while you could do that. You know, like people always love that joke about Homer knowing the Supreme Court justices or being an expert on that. Like that's very out of character for Homer, but it's still funny. And it's also it's just that one time. And so we I think we were always trying to make we were definitely I think very cognizant of Homer. This is, that's not something Homer would say. Homer wouldn't know that word. Homer wouldn't know who that person is, you know? And so we were definitely, we were trying to be faithful to the characters in that respect. Yes, definitely. And that, that's, that's kind of what helps with the longevity of it all. And I think it was, it was 1998 when you departed the Simpsons. Was there? Yes, that's right. No, it was 98. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you left because you stated that, you didn't necessarily want to still be involved if you didn't feel like you could contribute to the level you expected of yourself and what you expected of the show. Oh yeah. That was definitely the th- part of the, that was absolutely part of it. And part of it was that we wanted to go on and do something different because we'd already been at the Simpsons for approximately seven years. And we were like, we just felt that we weren't like we were running out of the gas. And we also felt that the show like wasn't going to go much longer anyway, because comedies never went that like the most longest running comedies in TV history went nine or 10 seasons, you know, cheers and mash and shows like that. And we were like, and we were already at the end of season eight. And so we didn't, obviously we were very wrong because now what is it? Season 35 or whatever mm. we were the wrong, we were very, very wrong, but we felt that we were going to, that we were going to have a hard time coming up with new stories that, and being inventive and creative. And also at that time, it was kind of that the tradition was that you would run the show for two years and leave pretty much. And so that was also the way we felt. And we had opportunities to go elsewhere and create our own shows, which seemed like fun. Yeah. And that a lot, a lot of fans and even some writers and producers on the shows kind of, if you look at say IMDB ratings rather than my opinion or your opinion, that's, the decline kind of started post season eight, nine, ten. That's kind of when P 
people generically tend to say, oh, that's when The Simpsons kind of took a downturn. But some people love the latest season, so it's kind of each to their own, really. But you mentioned there that the recycling of jokes could have been an issue. And there's that big episode where, I forget, I think it's like the principal in the Pauper. The principal the Pauper, yes. Yeah, uh-huh. with Seymour Skinner, where his character is basically just shown to be a complete fraud. It's just he is not who he says he is. And in a comedy where Seymour had his flashbacks to the war, he had the Norman Bates references to his mother watching over him. That kind of all just kind of got ripped away for the sake of a, a quick gag and a, a what seemed then like a pointless episode. But I'm not necessarily criticizing that episode because like to watch it, it, it can, has its laughs and isn't the worst episode I've ever seen of any comedy TV show. <laughs> but it is what some people say was that was it. That was kind of the recycling of jokes, changing a key character for the benefit just of short-term gain, long-term loss. Did you really kind of see that just before you left, kind of going? No, I just disagree with all of those remarks. That That's the thing where we, we would have done the episode in season five or six. And the thing is that what people don't, first of all, I would dispute that there's any recycled jokes in that episode. It's almost entirely new, fresh jokes. The, the character is that what people don't like is the fact that the character is not who he said he was. Yeah. And that is the underfund. That is the thing that people have an issue with. And that's, I, I respect that you can have an issue with that. Well, the whole point of that episode is that it is a parody of one of the most famous stories in the history of stories, which is the return of Martin Guerre, which is a story from the, what are the 13th or 14th century France where a guy returns from war and it's not the guy that, left but everyone kind of just pretends it is then that was remade into a movie that was pretty successful around that time as well called Summersby and that was what we were doing because it, it meshed so neatly with Principal Skinner and his uh, and his Vietnam experience and so we felt that like that 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 was a story that was a, we thought that was a very interesting story that added a new dimension to principal Skinner and gave him, cause he was already, we were already, we were recycling jokes at that point, but they were the same principal Skinner jokes. And we felt that it was adding a slightly new dimension to principal Skinner or to the character that was known as Armin Tamzarian. So like, we didn't like that. I would not say that that, you know, personally, and I won't go into it because I don't want any to, to offend any of the people who worked for us. I think that was an excellent episode that could have easily been in season five or six or whatever um, that I would have been proud to have done. But we, there are other episodes where I felt we were running out of gas and that, that were because also because Josh and I were tired and sick of doing the show in, in late season eight that we were, that were still, I mean, they're still pretty good. They're still good by, by, by Some great regular TV standards. Season eight. Yeah. No, and there's very good episodes throughout season eight, but there's also ones that I don't think were quite up to the standards that we had in mind. That is not one of them. That's the actually, and it's the thing is that people, because it's a very polarizing episode where people have a very distinct opinion about whether we should have retconned Skinner's history or not. Yeah. Uh, they use that as a flashpoint, but I think also there's a very, there's a lot of terrific episodes in season nine as well. Um, I haven't seen that much of season 10, but like I would dispute anybody. I, I don't think that should be used as the turning point. And I don't think there was a turning point necessarily. I think there's been a lot of like roller coastery dips and dives from what I've heard. Honestly, I only saw some of season nine and I've seen maybe two or three episodes in the past 20 years. 
Well, that's the whole point of this podcast to kind of get the <laughs> the intel from the the firing line and the the bunkers, if you may. Good, good. But yeah, like as I said, I that this is kind of the general the what the the Instagram community would say yeah, like that yeah, was the the big moment. But like it is, it's completely understandable. I I nearly see both sides to it, but like hearing the creative side to it, and I always knew. And one of the things I loved about the Simpsons was there was always maybe a reference to an old film or a Bible story yeah. or something, a newspaper clipping from the fifties or a story from the fifties yeah, yeah. that kind of gave a character a bit more weight. So as you're referring to there, that, that only adds to it and kind of explains this in a bit more light and makes it a whole lot more sense of the episode. And with that, so you, you you've dealt with the departure and you've gone on and you worked on like Mission Hill and Disenchantment and a few other shows. And I've watched actually a bit of Mission Hill over the years. And it's, a, I don't even know, I don't really have the vocabulary probably to describe <laughs> it, but it's a bit more, it's like a gritty kind of grimy cartoon. That's a bit more, I think, based for older teenagers. Like I found it yeah. a lot more like relatable and funny maybe in my 20s than I did. Oh, yeah. I'd say if I was like a 12-year-old, it'd probably get a lot more lost on me. But coming from The Simpsons where you probably learned so much, and as you said, it had its DNA that you had to work to and create for. Like, did The Simpsons always linger in the back of your head when working on those those TV shows? Like, did that influence you and in everything you did? Or was it kind of like, that was part of my life, but now I want to take this part of me or this creative edge towards whatever TV show I create or help out with moving forward. It definitely influenced Mission Hill. I mean, that was the whole conception of Mission Hill was because on The Simpsons, Josh and I continually noticed that there are no characters on The Simpsons between the ages of 12 and 35, except for Otto, who's not that fun to write for. And <laughs> we were like, let's create a show where almost all the characters are that age, those ages. So you can do high school stories. You can do stories about lousy first jobs. That was the whole point of Mission Hill. And I, we used our Simpsons skills to kind of bring that world to life. Since then, we've done a lot of other things. Some of the things, I mean, are very much Futurama Disenchantment are very much in the Simpsons mold because they're both Matt Groening projects. And there's a certain format, you know, that he that he's that he trusts, and there's a certain way the show looks. Um, but Josh and I have done both together and and independently a lot of things that are very that are different. We've done some things that are extremely different. We've done some dramas. Um, we've done, and the most recent thing I did was this audio book called Space 1969 on on Audible, which is. Um, my opinion is the best thing I ever wrote. And it's, uh, I would say it has definitely a Simpsons slash Futurama vibe, even though it is an audio production. Um, and I also try to use that sensibility in my Instagram videos too, which is like, that's other, that's, you know, I wouldn't say that's my paying job, but it's about 30% of my <laughs> work time now is doing this is doing food related stuff. Yeah. And it's kind of funny where you've, You've grown up in a generation where I was I was born in 94, but you kind of grew up well before that. You wrote during that. You kind of came up the other end of that. And now you're most recently, as I, I said in the introduction, you're the the term now is a vlogger type thing, but obviously yeah. you're a lot more influencer. than that. I'm yeah, a food an influencer. Influencer. <laughs> food celebrity. influencer as well. And if you go even like on YouTube or mainly your Instagram you have now become this this cult figure. It's nearly like the man versus food vibe of like you go around, test out some fast food, junk food, whatever you want to call it, uh, 
in Ireland, we just call it Sunday food or hungover food, uh-huh. the dirty food. And like, what, what inspired you to get into that? Was it something that you're like, I actually like fast food. I might as well start video. Yeah. Or was it someone? I've always liked fast food and stuff like that. And like frozen food and think what I, what I guess you call, I would call everyday food, which is the, you know, it's like, <laughs> that's, that's a uh, and so I, I never intended it to become my second career, although now it it's we're on the cusp of that actually happening, um, because I I always had opinions about that all the way back into when I was a teenager about like I'd always wanted to be the first one to try the new thing at McDonald's or whatever or the new type of frozen pizza or whatever. So basically, I just kind of evolved from putting my opinions on Twitter to filming them and putting them on Instagram and they became popular because they're slightly more funny than the average person doing that. Sometimes they're very, sometimes I actually spend a lot of time carefully crafting something that's really funny. Other times they're pretty straight with just me being naturally, you know, rather wry about it. Um, but people, I think, appreciate the fact that I'm very honest about them as because most Instagram food stuff is just promoting whatever the product is without an opinion. And yeah. I'm extremely blunt about whether the product sucks or not. And uh, people have come to appreciate that, I think. That's why some, like, some publications have called me the Gordon Ramsay of fast food. Although I don't cook, unlike <laughs> Gordon Ramsay, I'm very blunt and sometimes in a funny way about things. Um, I tend not to post things that I don't like, but except when there's something that is, has a newsworthy value, like the new thing from Burger King that will suck or whatever. McDonald's makes a rare misstep in a big way. Um, so yeah, I do that. And I also post, I have other, th- I have other food related things. I appear on shows as an expert. I appear on the history channel on the show called the food that built America as an expert on fast food. I have my own club for food. Um, enthusiasts called the steamed ham society if anyone wants to join go to steamedhamsociety.com we have people from all over the world and it, it's a it's a pretty tight-knit community of people who are interested in talking about food and and we all even i even have a beer coming out as you can see maybe your viewers can see right here this poster yeah we can uh, see it's that. going to be the steamed hams lager is coming out this summer in conjunction with local brewery um, that is going to be the ideal beer to pair with a hamburger that we have worked very hard <laughs> to test in that respect Wow. Well, it's well, if you do get the shipping okay or the green flag, you should maybe send some over to Ireland because I don't think we'll even need a good hamburger with that. We'll just call it a look. <laughs> okay, right, great. That. But, and with the, the fast food element of it, like I, I look around, we obviously have Burger King, McDonald's, some of the big institutions are here in Ireland as well. We also mm-hmm. have like Supermax and some really like dog shit is the the verbiage we use here <laughs> as in just really bad places but surely uh-huh. and like i've been to america i've had my in and out burgers i've had uh, a big mac on hollywood boulevard like what was the you're kind of throwing someone under the bus but like what was the most outrageous fast food experience you had it can either be it doesn't have to be a terrible like you ate a burger and you got sick it was so bad but like what was the most outrageous experience you had because i could only imagine if i traveled to all the fast food places or chippers we call them in dublin uh what was the most outrageous thing you came across her oh i don't know that this would anybody in, in ireland would appreciate this but burger king in america is um has been going through some tough times and they still have some uh the really a really good burger and a, and a couple and a couple of really good chicken sandwiches, but a lot of the other stuff they introduce is terrible. And the um, 
uh, two or three years ago, they introduced tacos, which is not in the, it's not the oh, kind of thing that you get from Burger King. And they were so bad. It was obvious that Burger King is just uh, many times just buys a warehouse. Like somebody comes to them and says, I got a warehouse with 10 million frozen tacos in a Burger King, you know, I'll sell them to you for nothing. And Burger King is like, yeah. okay. And then they have all this advertising to make it seem like it's really cool to buy Burger King tacos. The Burger King tacos were so bad. And they also completely shattered because I think that they're not, they were not set up to make the tacos. So as soon as you'd open them, you just get a whole bunch of broken pieces of taco <laughs> shell. And it really made me laugh out loud when I opened it because it was just like, I mean, you couldn't even pick it up. It was so fun. <laughs> anyway, that was the worst thing I've ever had in my in all of my fast food journeys. I've had other things that were repulsive, but other people liked them. Like one restaurant came out with fruit, you know, Fruit Loops the cereal. I don't know if you guys have yeah. that. No, we they did, came out we with did. these giant Fruit Loops donuts that were basically donut-sized Fruit Loops covered with Fruit Loop for the flavor frosting, and they were nauseating. <laughs> I found them to be nauseating. Other people liked them, but that was another time when I had. Um, I made what was a pretty fun, ultimately a pretty funny video because I was so naturally repulsed. You know, I try to film myself having the food for the very first time, and you can see the expression on my face as it dawns on me how awful it is. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like a good time, and that that brings me back, I should say, to the the big crisp manufacturer in Ireland is Tato Crisp. Cheese I love those. Crisp. And they're yeah. different apparently in Northern Ireland and Ireland. There's a yeah. there's a slightly different logo and stuff, but I just had some in fact, where are they? I just you can want you can very occasionally find them uh, in I cannot tell which ones are from Northern Ireland and which ones are from Ireland, but um, I love Tato's. I love the prawn cocktail. Yeah, that's- I love the um, steak and onion, which I think maybe your Northern Ireland ones. I just finished a bag of those two days ago. Um, but uh, yeah, those are. I think th- their flavors are the those two in particular um, are some of the best I've ever had. Yeah, they go quite unique with some of their left field flavors, which is is good to see. But <laughs> one thing you probably never heard about was they introduced a chocolate bar with oh, Tato did. Yeah, no. with cheese, cheese and onion crisps Ew. in like a rectangular <laughs> chocolate bar. And it is in my top three worst things I've ever <laughs> tasted in my life because it's just I'm the two they tried opposite. <laughs> yeah, they tried and failed. Better to try and fail than never try at all. That's right. But yeah, so maybe if they, if they sell it again, I might try ship some over to the US so you can really get your teeth stuck into them. Oh, I would think love that. Oh my God, thank you in advance. <laughs> Yeah, I'll try. If there is any available, they sometimes do like partial releases, so I'll keep my eye out. Thank you. And yeah, so what I I normally do, Bill, is to finish the podcast, I just do some quick fire questions, send Mm -hmm. everyone home relatively, you know, in good moods, even though a lot of the Uh stuff and a lot of the content has been uh, very interesting and quite funny at stages. But yeah, so the first thing that comes into into your mind feel free to shout it out, but don't oh, worry. Exciting. They're not too incriminating or too crazy because then they'd kind of not be quick fire and not fun. So number one is which character from the Simpsons would you most like to have a beer with and which character would you least like to have a beer with? I'm probably the only person who would ever say this, but I think I'd like to have a beer with Principal Skinner. <laughs> I really like Principal Skinner. I always <laughs> liked writing for him, and I would. I think he has a lot. Um, well, first of all, I don't know that I've ever seen him drink a beer for one. But if, but no. I'm sure it probably would be a, 
an interesting experience. Not, I wouldn't want to spend the whole evening with him, but for one beer, I would want to, I would want to have a conversation with principal Skinner. Yeah. And the worst of the person you just wouldn't want to have a beer with Helen Lovejoy. (laughs) Yeah. That's a very good answer. I think very sincere. Yeah. Yeah. Very to the point. Uh, Number two, what is the best burger in America? This is it's so, it's so complicated to say this, and I want to say <laughs> I want because I have there's so many different types of burgers. Like there's burgers you get in a restaurant, and there's burgers that you get in a fast food place, and there's also regional burgers. And I'll just say, the best burger that you can get anywhere in America is the McDonald's Quarter Pounder Deluxe, which is their Quarter Pounder with the lettuce, tomato, mayonnaise. The best burger that you can only get in certain parts of America is from Culver's, a fast food chain in the Midwest. They have double butter burger, um, and the best burger I've ever had at a restaurant is probably it's quite possibly this one i just had in cincinnati at a place called zips but it could also be at my father's office in santa monica Th- those are not your traditional burgers they're all a little bit different but those are the ones i was thinking i was thinking about this, this morning actually it's very hard to rank them because you can't even compare burgers from fast food to burgers from a restaurant or even like a food truck yeah it's it's very difficult without Really factoring in the fact that one's made a McDonald's and one maybe will cost you $45 with exactly, some chef crying exactly. in the background. So, <laughs> And number three, I normally ask what people their favorite film is, but I thought I'd take a slightly different twist on it today. Uh, so what is your favorite Quentin Tarantino film? Man, you know, that's a good question because I think – it would have been Pulp Fiction, except I've seen it so many times I don't really care for it anymore. I've seen it. Uh, I, it's def- I would definitely, have not, um, assuming that we rule that out, it would be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is the film that I, I don't want to hear other people's opinions. I like it so much, and I feel it's as close as we're ever going to get to time travel that I like yeah. I don't want to hear people talking about it like it's a movie or they didn't like this scene or that scene. I always want to enjoy it. I've literally tried to keep myself from ever hearing anyone else's opinion about it because I just want to watch it and enjoy it and and be transported to that era so vividly that I don't care about it as a film. I like it as an experience. Yeah. Well, my my review of that film is very positive. I'm one of these, as my Excellent. dad says, uh, a closet psycho who read all the books about Charles Manson and stuff like that. So <laughs> when that backstory came out and I also, as you said, like I actually love the way Tarantino presented his version of the kind of the seventies and that era yeah. of Hollywood. I thought it was great. I haven't been to Hollywood so many times myself, even how he, he did up the boulevard for a few of the driving scenes was. Yeah. Oh my God. That was amazing. Was, amazing. was crazy. But yeah, no, I agree with you there. And yeah, so the next one is what is worse, doing the dishes, changing your bed sheets, or hoovering the house? Personally, I would say the bed sheets because it involves a lot more active. I don't like I don't mind those other two things because I can listen to a podcast while I'm doing them. The bed sheets is a very active thing that involves a lot of moving of your arms and a lot more exercise, I think. Um, yeah. And so I would prefer to avoid doing that at, if all possible. Oh, no, it probably takes less time than those other things. Definitely. But I don't I don't like it as much because it's harder to zone out. It's more physical labor. <laughs> it requires 100% of a man's concentration to get that right. Yeah, and I have a lot of t- hard times with fitted sheets. I can never get the fitted sheet on properly yeah. on you know to, to not 
pull off on one corner or whatever. And it's frustrating. Yeah, I know. My mom's tried to teach me, I'd say about 20 times. And it must be like a football coach trying to teach a guy how to tackle. And he just is so shit at tackling <laughs> and never can do it because yes. that's pretty much what I'm like with the sheets. So I, I feel, I feel your pain there. So one of the last ones here is, do you think the Simpsons whole idea or kind of description of the Irish is correct? I don't really know. The only time I can, the only Irish things I can think of are those things from that St. Patrick's Day parade episode, <laughs> the, the prohibition episode, you know, and they're away over that. They're, ter- they're purposely over the top. Like the Australia episode was all purposely over the top as well. And you know, they're, car- they're absurdly cartoonish. The kind of thing that you would have seen in a newspaper comic strip in like 1910. So like, I don't, I honestly don't. I have never been to Ireland. I can't say how accurate they are. They're intentionally silly, and I hope that Irish people understand and appreciate that. Yeah, no, and we, that, you we, know, just, are these the things we think of the Irish? Get, you know, <laughs> getting drunk and fist fighting. That's like they're they're all very cartoonish. Yeah, well, it's somewhat accurate. And listen, we can laugh at ourselves more often than not. And Good. one of the funniest things I've ever seen was a a Twitter post about four years ago where it had the Kent Brockman report on Paddy's day. And then the Irish, well, not the American Irish, whoever it was kicking the crap out of each other in the background. But it was a split screen where it showed Dublin on Paddy's day, where it had a bunch (laughs) of Irish people kicking the shit out of each other on our main street. So there's some truth to that. I never, you'll be glad to know. That's hilarious. I'd love to be able to recover because I actually like dubbed it as well. And like one of the punches in real life actually like makes the same sound effect as the, the video. Above. It's wow. pretty good. And third last one is the best TV show you've seen in the last five years. For me, it's Better Call Saul. That's been my favorite show. You know, Better Call Saul, for those who don't know, is the sequel or rather the prequel to Breaking Bad, which I think everybody knows. Um, and that has been my favorite show. Breaking Bad was prior to that. Better Call Saul was subsequently, and it just ended earlier this year. But that's my, been my favorite show for, for years. Yeah. That's my, it's my dad's too as well. And my brother's. Oh, wow. So, we have a lot in common, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. But yeah, it's the one I haven't seen. I've seen Breaking Bad, but I haven't got around to it. But everyone speaks so highly of it. And to, you got to make it to the first season and a half are kind of slow. Um, but then it starts to, when it starts to pick up speed, you know, toward in the last two seasons, it's just, it's excellent. Okay. Well, it's on the list. So second last one is your favorite scene in a film. Also, there's a character named Bill Oakley, a major character in Better Call, Call Saul. Bill Oakley, named yeah. Bill Oakley, I kept, <laughs> which is, is fascinating. I kept, and I had that guy, up. the actor in uh, the actor who plays Bill Oakley has appeared in some of my fast food videos. Uh, he's a very nice guy. And, I, and so th- there's a weird uh, coincidence there. Yeah, no, I was through my Google research and whatnot. I'd sometimes be like seeing pictures of two different bills. And I was like, what? Yeah. Does this guy get like a complete a, a surgery done where he's just completely transformed? But yeah. <laughs> yes, I got it. I got airplanes. It's, it's a funny coincidence. But yeah, the follow up question was your favorite scene in a film? My favorite scene in a film? Yeah, particular scene. You know, yeah. Okay, I can do two. There is one of them would probably be uh, 
the Tarant- uh, this is another Tarantino scene, is the scene in the bar in occupied France where they're playing that game and the, the SS officer is recognizing their accents. You know, oh, when it yeah, ends up with the guy glorious bastards. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And glorious bastards. That's one for sure. And the other one, this is a much older reference, is in the movie JFK, which is about the JFK assassination, is the part where Donald Sutherland is playing this secret agent named X, who's explaining the entire way that the conspiracy unfolded to kill Kennedy. It's about a six or eight minute scene. It's very dramatic and has stuck with me. We, you know, we, I think we parried it on The Simpsons, uh, and I've done many things with it. It's a very, very effective, entertaining scene. Okay. I haven't seen that. I've seen the first one, but the second one not, so... I look forward to the day I can check it out. It's very interesting. Successfully refer back to that. And last question is if you could ask yourself a question that I haven't asked you already today, what would it be? It would be, would you like to promote Space 1969 on Audible? <laughs> and <laughs> the answer is yes. Thank you for asking. Now, I don't know. I can't say for your audience that this is going to that this this is going to be a huge thing for people outside of America because it requires a, a kind of an doesn't require, but it, 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 it you benefit from having a lot of knowledge of America in the 1960s. And this is let me just say it's a show uh, that. Um, I as a radio show type thing that I wrote my entire uh, all ten episodes myself. The ultimate thing I wanted to write it takes place in a, it takes place in a scenario where John F. Kennedy did not get killed, but rather just went into a coma. And when he awoke, he decided we should spend all our resources trying to expand America into space as quickly as possible. So when the series starts, it's his third inauguration day. We have a space station and the moon colony is just about to open. And the star of the show is a nurse who works on the space station played by Natasha Leone, who um, did an incredible job of the, with the comedy. She's a hilarious person. And it's my favorite thing I ever wrote. So if, I mean, again, I don't know how many people who are especially younger people and especially people not from America will appreciate it, but it's actually been the most popular thing I've ever done that wasn't created by Matt Groening. Um, in fact, it's so popular that we're already negotiating to do a sequel, which I hope will come to pass. Okay. And where would be the best place to find that and everything else you're doing? Would it be Instagram? Yes, so just what go to Audible. It's very simple to find Audible. You have an app or the website, search for Space 1969 or Bill Oakley. Easy to find. Secondly, if you want to, if you want to follow me on Instagram, go to that Bill Oakley. Or the same thing on Twitter, but most of the Instagram, the food stuff is on Instagram. And lastly, should you be extremely interested in the food stuff and like want to get on the, you know, be if you want to spend more time with me, Bill Oakley, <laughs> coming to my live streams and hanging out with me on the Discord, join the Steamed Ham Society, steamedhamsociety.com. There's a special level there for people who are Simpsons fans because we have a special Simpsons channel uh, on the Discord. And we also have a, every month a live stream with some behind the scenes player on the Simpsons, we've had David X. Cohen, we've had John Vitti, David Silverman, all those people on our Steamed Ham Society Simpsons live stream. So those are things that you can do if you if you want more content <laughs> created by me. Okay, sounds good. Well, I will get all those links in the the ins well Instagram slash www web. And I will attach them in all the YouTubes and Spotify. So if anyone's fantastic, interested fantastic. in any of Thank that, so much. make sure you look. Uh, there will be a lot of Simpsons fans. I even know some of my friends who are mad into it. So uh, do feel free to click on any of those links if it sounds like something that you'd be into. But yeah, Bill, that pretty much wraps it up. 
I will keep my eye out for that Tato uh, chocolate bar. Hopefully, thank it you so much. I'm excited. If they come up with any other interesting flavors, I do. I have gotten stuff. I would say after the U.S. and Canada, Australia and Ireland are the two countries where I have gotten the most stuff from people. It's expensive to mail stuff from Ireland. So the packages are really pretty yeah. small. I've gotten a lot of candy and I've gotten a number of Tato flavors, all of which I've loved, including they have the, they have, they've had a few special like Halloween flavors or something, I think yep, too. They do that. But um, I've had, I've had those. And I know maybe one of some of your listeners are those people who sent me those things. I always appreciate it. And especially because it's extremely hard to find Irish candy and potato chips here. I, I, I super extra appreciate it. Yeah, well, I will keep my eyes out, but I do want to thank Thank you for taking your time out of your schedule. And yeah, no, listen, I wish you all the best. And as I said, it always sounds like you've got stuff going on. So I look forward to what's coming next in in your career with your work. And yeah, no, listen, thanks again. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you.